Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, London preacher and one of my personal heroes, once said this, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose, and the lion will defend itself. Um, when he said that, it was at the time of the 19th century, there was a lot of controversy over the inerrancy of Scripture. Was the Bible really authoritative? Could we believe it? And so that's why he said that. But what I like about that is what he's saying is true. God's Word is just powerful in and of itself. If we were to kind of go through this room, I'll bet you a handful of you might have just got converted simply by reading the Word of God. I shared a story with you, some of my friends, um, they were stoned at a party in Seattle, and they opened up the book of Revelation and began to read it and got convicted and came to saving faith just reading the Word of God. So what I want to do right now is, I, I, know, I know this is a bit long, but guys, I'm just excited for this text. I would like you to stand. We're going to read both these chapters because it's just, it's just too good not to. Revelation 4, and we're going to go all the way through 4 into 5. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal." And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive power, glory and honor and power because you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written and on the back sealed with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it, and I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a, a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Guys, when you just read this, I don't know about you, but I... This might be my favorite chapters in Revelation, my, my favorite chapters in the Bible. I, I, it just feels like I need to do this, you know? When you read something like this, right? Or you know what this is. It's when Moses came before the burning bush and God said, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. Oh, I got two mismatching socks on this morning. But it's when you pick out your socks in the dark. I'm, gonna put, I'm short, so I need as much height as I can. But when you read this, you feel like, man, we're on holy ground. This morning, uh, we come to the, the third of five sections of Revelation that, that, that make up this whole book, and beginning here in chapter 4, I hope you got the sense that words give way to pictures at this point. Revelation is art, and the message, the overall message we are to receive comes from the impressions from the masterpiece, not necessarily analyzing the brushstrokes and the technique of the painter. It's, it's at Revelation chapter 4 that those who approach this book kind of like a puzzle are going to get lost in the details and, and start getting really caught up in the theories. Now, let me be clear, there is a place for the details, there's a place for the theories in the halls of a university behind an academic lectern, but we are a church, this is a pulpit, and God demands to be proclaimed, not merely described. And so we're going to proclaim the message of this vision rather than just describe all the details. We don't want to miss the main point because we're concerned with the particulars. To help you get this, because there's a lot going on in this text, I want to give you three words that you can kind of hang your hat on to follow along. Those three words are throne, worthy, and worship. Throne, worthy, and worship. To help you see the vision of uh, Revelation 4 and 5 more clearly, we do need to back up for a moment and discuss the role that these two chapters play because they are pivotal to understanding what's going on. Now, we spent uh, seven weeks, I'm going to hold this so I don't shake, seven weeks we were here discussing the second section of the book of Revelation entitled The Church. See, Revelation has five major sections. The Lord, that was the first section, and we did that the very first week. It's just one chapter. The second section is about the church. 
The third section's the lion, the lamb. The fourth section's the war. And the last final section is the end. And this is really important here. We spent seven weeks of it because the message to the churches in that section are really the message to the churches in all time and place that we endure during the war in chapters 6 through 8. You recall in our study those embattled churches that were facing false teaching, they were facing compromise, tribulation, suffering, and the ever-present struggle to fall asleep, to get comfortable as Christians. Those are challenges not just to those ancient Christians, but those are challenges that all Christians in all times and all places will face. And so the message of the churches here apply to all believers everywhere because we're always going to face suffering and tribulation, persecution, and the temptation to fall asleep, to lose our vigilance. So the question has to be, how do we as a church, how do you as a Christian keep awake? How do you fight temptation? How do you fight compromise? How do you endure tribulation and suffering and persecution? What you need is a vision of something great. You need a perspective of victory and of glory and of triumph. You need that to carry you through. That is exactly why we have section three. This amazing vision of God on his throne because that vision serves as the foundation for everything that the church is called to endure throughout its life. And so Jesus shows John to show us. Friends, the, the very center of power in the universe Friends, we just read and looked at the very center of the halls of power of the universe. Jesus chose John to show us the commander-in-chief of history and reality. We need to see that vision because of the task and challenge ahead. Vern Poitras says this, when God's people are beset by temptation or persecution, a revelation of God's character... Somehow that didn't, trans- that didn't cross over in translation. Let me just read it here. When God's people are beset by temptation or persecution, a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. Let me say that again. When God's people are beset by temptation and persecution, a revelation of God's character and glory is the best remedy. Friends, you see, revelation renews us, revelation inspires us, revelation encourages us, not because it gives us the particulars and the details of future events. No, that's not, as a matter of fact, that's what actually confuses people. It it concerns people. That's not how revelation inspires us. It inspires us by showing us God. And we see that so clearly, unlike any other here in chapter 4 and 5, that's how revelation inspires the church. Because when we get a vision of God, when we see what God is actually like, we conclude, he's got this. He has got this. Whether it is global problems or the, the, the epochs of history or your own personal struggles, The vision, having a vision of God is the thing we always need. We were talking this morning during elder prayer. Every time you go through the Bible and study it, every time a man or a woman sees a vision of God, regardless of their struggle, and they were major struggles, when they saw God, they all just went, what am I complaining about? What am I worried about? 
Whether it's Isaiah who saw a vision of God, he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I'm amongst an unclean people. Or Peter, when he realized who Jesus was, he says, get away from me. I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Whenever we see God, everything gets put in perspective. Friends, our problem isn't that our problems are too big, whether it's our own personal struggles or the struggles of the globe of our society. The problem we have as believers is that our view of God is not big enough. We see God through the vision of our problems. We're supposed to see our problems through the vision of God. And that's what Revelation 4 and 5 is trying to do, is to help us see and get the right view of God. That's how this thing plays out. So now let's talk about the actual vision. The vision of Revelation 4 or 5, the first word, we can't miss it, is the word throne. I mean, you simply can't miss it. It shows up 19 times in these two chapters. Now, friends, a throne is the symbol, right, of a king's power and authority and sovereignty. And so notice that, that John, in our passage here, look at verse 3, John himself, he, he can't even describe the Lord, so he basically has to describe his throne. Look at verse Three, and he who sat there on the throne had the, and, and notice by the way, a lot of these words, appearance, likeness, this, that, he can't, he doesn't say this is what he looks like, it just kind of looks like this, he doesn't even know how to describe it. The one who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Okay, this, these are jasper and carnelian stones. John is saying the one who's on the throne had this appearance of jasper and carnelian. I, I don't even have a, cat. what does that look like? When he's seeing God, all he can say is, this one on the throne has the appearance of this carnelian and jasper. We don't have categories for that, and neither does John, so he doesn't bother trying to describe him anymore. He just talks about the throne that this one sits on. And what he starts saying is in verses 3 and 4 and following, he says, so this throne, it had a rainbow, but the the, the rainbow had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, What? Okay? You know what a rainbow looks like, right? It's got seven colors, and, and I'm tempted to get into the number seven right now. If you pick up, it's all over the place. But the rainbow's got seven colors. We know what those colors are, but this rainbow, it's a real rainbow, but it has the appearance of emerald that's surrounding the throne. Around this throne were 24 other thrones, and there were flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder coming out from the throne. In front of the throne, there are seven torches of fire. And before that, there's this like sea of glass-like crystal. And if that isn't enough, he talks about these four living creatures that are flying around the throne with eyes all over with six wings each. Okay, this is his throne. Now, thrones symbol a king's authority and sovereignty and power. What does this say about the Lord God? Friends, this, if you're a note taker, Revelation 4 and 5, this is like a playlist. This is, this is a mashup. This is a montage. This is a collage. This is a crescendo. This is the culmination of so much of the Old Testament all being smashed into here. And, and, and so if you're a note taker, write down uh, Daniel chapter 7. Because, and and if we have time, we'll jump into that. What Daniel's describing in Daniel 7 is almost identical to what John's describing here in Revelation 3 and 4. So there are themes from Daniel chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah's seeing the same kind of thing, and he's describing it, keep in mind, 500, 600, 700 years before this. So it's Daniel 7, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel chapter 1 and 2, Zechariah chapter 4, Exodus 19. Now the point is, 
we are just getting a mash of all kinds of Old Testament visions and, and, and reality being smashed right here. It's all packed in here. We can't get into it. Like, so Genesis chapter 9, the rainbow. You remember where the rainbow comes from, right? Genesis 9, after God had destroyed the world, he had swore that he would put his bow of rain down. He would no longer attack the earth this way. And so the bow of rain, the rainbow, being put down was his sign that he would never do this again. The rainbow is a sign of mercy, of power, of sovereignty, of God's covenant. And so that imagery is here to remind us of this. The 24 thrones, the 24 elders representative of all the redeemed of God's people. Whether it was the 12 tribes of Israel that represented the people of God in the Old Covenant or the 12 apostles of the New Testament that represent the people of God from the New Covenant. You remember we taught you that in Mark chapter 3? So we have the, the old people from the Old Covenant, the people from the New Covenant represented here to be clear this is not the actual men that were the patriarchs or the apostles. These are beings that represent them. They're all over the place. And then there's lightning and thunder and peal, rumblings. Where does that come from? Remember the first time God showed up to humanity to do business? Exodus chapter 19, when the people of God are now assembled and God comes down onto the Mount Sinai. Flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and smoke. It was an evidence of God's holy and terrifying presence right there. And we see that here at the throne as well. And these four creatures, representative of all the superlatives we can think of. Think about it. The lion, the fiercest of all the wild animals. The ox, the, most, the strongest of all the domesticated animals. The eagle, the majestic of all the birds of flight, and man, the crown of God's creation, wisest of all, ruler of all. And notice verse 6. Notice verse 6. This sea of glass. What? Guys, check this out. I mean, I'm sorry, I just geek out on these things, but... I, I, at one point, wanted to be a director, a movie maker in my life, so I just see everything with this imagination. Imagine the scene. This crashing sounds everywhere. This awesome display of awesomeness, right? Thunder and smoke and lightning and rainbow flying. All this cacophony of noise. And right before this, total tranquility. You ever seen a sea that's totally calm? Stillness, peace, order, serenity. How does this work? You've got crashing thunder, lightning bolts going everywhere, and a rainbow flying around, and all these monstrous beasts, and total serenity, and quietness, and peace, and control. It's like a Christopher Nolan film. It's like going, and you're coming in, and you're going out, and like, what is going on here? Because this doesn't compute with reality. You either have chaos, and, and noise, and awesome displays, or you have total quietness. But in God, all these realities just coexist perfectly. We don't have a category for the kinds of things we're seeing here. And you can tell John is struggling with the limitations of language to describe this experience in God's throne. The language he uses, chapter 4, verse 13. Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. He's not holy once. He's not holy twice. He's three times. See, the Hebrews, the Jews... Use language differently, adjectives at least. So we have big, bigger, and best, or, or big, bigger, and biggest. They would say it's big, 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 right? Same concept here, holy, 
holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord. Now, because we actually use that title for human beings, it makes sense that he defines what kind of Lord he is. He's the Lord God. That says it right there, but that's not enough for John. He, or that's not enough for these angelic beings. He is the Lord God Almighty. And that's still not enough. Do you see the whole title he has? Holy, that's his title. The Lord God Almighty, who was before time, who is throughout time, and is to come beyond time. He's the whole thing. This is his throne. This is who he is. And where is all this taking place? Look right there. Um, Look at chapter 5, verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea. So to them, that's the description of all the known reality of the universe. See, the throne of God is not centered in heaven. The throne of God is in the center of the universe. What is Jesus communicating? What are we we seeing in this vision? Friends, the universe is God-centered. Everything revolves around him. Guys, this is is a terrifying sight. This is not, you know, my Lord is my best friend kind of mentality that's sometimes so trite in evangelical circles. "Ah, Jesus, he's cool, right? He's my bro. That is not the thing here. Right? There's a place for that, but that's not the impression I'm getting here when we see the throne. Now, as amazing as chapter 4 is, and guys, it is amazing, it's actually inadequate for a Christian worldview. Okay? What I mean by that is, any devout Jew will read chapter 4 and say, Amen, that's Yahweh. Yep. Right? Any... Uh, a Jehovah Witness would probably agree with this. Mormons would agree with something similar to this. Even a deist would go that way. A Muslim would say, yeah, this is a description of Allah. He's all-powerful. So if we just leave it at chapter 4, that's inadequate for a Christian worldview, which is why the second key word is so important, and that is the word worthy. Now, while the word, while the word worthy does not show up nearly as much as throne does, it shows about five times in our text, It's why he's worthy that is actually very significant. See, the hymn at the end of chapter 4, go look at chapter 4, at verse 11, the hymn makes explicit, uh, makes the, the main point of the vision explicit and explains kind of the whole chapter. God is to be glorified because of his holiness and sovereignty. Let's look at it, uh, chapter 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So the question we have to now ask ourselves in this vision is exactly how does God's will and his sovereign plan get carried out? When you ask that question, you understand why chapter 5 is here. This is where chapter 5 comes in. You see, chapter 4 is displaying God's supremacy and His magnificence over all of creation. We actually see that in the hymn in chapter 4, verse 11. You're worthy. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So as chapter 4 demonstrates God's supremacy over creation, chapter 5 is demonstrating His supremacy and magnificence over the new creation or recreation. You see, because chapter 5 is all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
God's will and his sovereign plan through Christ's death and resurrection and ongoing rule over all things through the Spirit whom he gives to his people. And key to chapter 5 is right there in verse 1. It's that scroll, right? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So the question we now ask is, what's in the scroll? Because, by the way, the scroll is a huge uh, symbol in Revelation. What does a scroll represent? Certainly could be his covenant, could be God's law, could be his promises, his plan, a legal will. The the tight parallel between what we're looking at here and Daniel 12.4, and if you're a note taker, probably Ezekiel chapter 2 verses 9 and 10 as well, but mostly Daniel 12, the, the tight parallel shows that the scroll is really God's plan and destiny for humanity as well as the world. So look at Daniel 12.4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. You see, in the book of Daniel, Daniel's receiving all these visions of how things will wind up, how history will come to a conclusion. And at the last chapter, in chapter 12, the Lord says, okay, you got it. Now seal all that up. We're not going to reveal that to the time of the end, which in my interpretation is what we're seeing right here in Revelation 4 and 5. It is the time of the end, and now that scroll needs to be unsealed, and someone worthy has to do it. I want to I I show you how Scripture is so interrelated. Keep your finger in Revelation 4. Go with me back to Daniel 7. I think we have time for this. Daniel chapter 7. This is a passage that's familiar to many of you if you've been in a church long. Certainly, if you've been here in the last two or three years, we've talked about it. This is an amazing vision that Daniel's seeing, and I want you to note the parallels between what we're seeing in Daniel 7 and what we're seeing in Revelation 4 and 5. Daniel 7, starting in verse 9, Daniel says this, and as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So Daniel names the Lord, the Ancient of Days, and he took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Now, do you see parallels to what we just read? Yeah, you did. You, you bet you did. But I also want you to notice this, because my brother-in-law, we were over having, we were having talking yesterday, and maybe Joe's watching right now. Hey, Joe. He was saying, I'm a little confused, because when we read Revelation 4 and 5, the ways that, that John is describing, or Jesus is describing God the Father, in the book of Colossians, they use those exact phrases to describe Jesus Christ. And I said, you're getting it. Because they're one and the same. And this is the, pro- the challenge of a triune God. You see this thing with, with prophecy. The lines blurring who does what and where and what they look like start to get a little bit hazy. Because did you notice in Daniel 7, those same descriptions were used of who in Revelation 1? Jesus. And so I'm not saying that Jesus is God the Father and God the Father is the Son. That's heresy. That's called modalism. They're distinct personalities. They're distinct persons. What I'm saying is they are completely one. And at some point, the prophecies and the apocalypse, they, they are, they're trying to wrestle with this reality. 
And so here's Daniel saying the scene. Here's the Ancient of Days. He takes a seat on the throne, and there's thousands of thrones around him, and everyone's worshiping him. And we just read that in Revelation 4. Look at Daniel 7, starting in verse um, 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Let's go back to Revelation. Keep that second part in your mind as we continue to read Revelation 5. So back to Revelation 5, John, through a vision he gets from Jesus, says there was one on the throne and he had a scroll. But here's the problem. This scroll has the destiny, the reality, the the plans and purposes of God. They need to be unsealed and opened. The Father talked about that in Daniel 12. But there's no one, not one of the living, four living creatures not one of the 24 elders, there seems to be no one who's worthy to unseal and unfold this scroll. And John weeps loudly. You see, the unsealing and opening of the scroll implies the accomplishment of God's purposes. And John longs for God's plans and purposes to come to pass. It's what he's given his life to, the very gospel itself. And if there is no final outworking of God's plan, then there is no justice for this broken, unjust world. If there's no unveiling of God's plan, then there's there's no ultimate redemption. There's no ultimate justice. There's no ultimate redemption. There's no fulfillment of God's promises. All is lost, and life itself is meaningless. And John weeps. Who can unveil the plot of life? Who can finish this up? Well, you know the story, but friends, think about it. In the first century, death was the specter that hung over humanity. But the cross of Christ overcame that. In the Middle Ages, for most of our history, guilt was a specter that hung over humanity. How can we be made right with a God who can bring back the dead? But we're so full of sin, and the rediscovery of the gospel overcame that. Today, we're not so much worried about death or even our guilt. The world around us is meshed and meshed in meaninglessness. Life doesn't have a point. What is the point of life? Jesus Christ overcomes that. You see, the opening of the scroll here in Revelation 5 sets into motion all that we're going to see really in the rest of, particularly next week in chapters 6 through 8, but really through the remainder of the book of Revelation. And, And friends, you need to notice this, and they all, they all have their origin point in the very throne of God and in His counsel. It's fascinating. You realize that everything we read in the book of Revelation, they have their origin in the throne of God. Verse 5, though. Some actually say that verse 5 is actually the key to the book of Revelation. I can understand why. Look at verse 5 of of chapter 5. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David has conquered. So that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. As a cross-reference, look at verse 9 of the same chapter. It says, you are worthy to take the scroll. So this being tells John, stop weeping, do not despair, because the lion of the tribe of Judah. Notice two things that's very interesting about that phrase, has conquered. The first thing to notice is, it's past tense. The lion has conquered, past tense. Secondly, and this is what I love about grammar, I'm trying to teach my kids, we're doing some Bible study reading together, I try and teach them, stop bringing your theology to the Bible. Stop bringing your Bible answers to the Bible and read the text. They're smiling because that's what I'm telling Bring your theology from the text. What I mean by that is, if you've been in a church long enough, you have a theological framework And there's a chance that you haven't built that from Scripture, but things that you've just heard from people, right? Things that you've heard taught, and you bring that theological framework, and then you read the Scripture through that. That's the opposite of what we're supposed to do. You build your theology from what the text says. The Holy Spirit inspired the the grammar of the text, so we even study that. Has conquered, past tense. But also notice this verb is lacking something. For those of you guys who are good at grammar and English, look at it. What is it lacking? This verb is lacking an object. And God knows grammar, right? He he, he he knows that needs an object, but he leaves it without an object. Why? Because the assumption in the whole context is he's conquered everything. He has conquered everything. The lion has conquered it all. Now, friends, this is where it gets really important from the last seven weeks of what we studied. We have to ask the question, how did he conquer? Because in the last seven weeks, every letter to every church, Jesus says to the Christians, conquer, conquer, conquer. You remember that, right? Every letter, Jesus ends it with saying, conquer, overcome. And if the lion has conquered, then we have to ask the question, how did he conquer? Because we're asked to do the same thing. Your answer is in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lion roaring as it tears apart its prey. No, that's not what your verse, that's not what it says. (laughs) That's not what it says. What does it say? I saw a lamb standing as though slain. Wait a minute, wait a minute. The elder said, hey, don't worry about it because the lion has conquered. And when John turns and looks, what's he see? A slain lamb. I love it. It's not a mistake. And now it's not an ordinary lamb, right? Read the description. He's got seven horns, right? He's got seven eyes, right? That, that would not make it to lamb chop. That would be a defect, right? But this is not, remember, this is symbolism. Seven, keep in mind, I said this in our very first study, seven is a number that comes up a lot in, in biblical terms. Um, um, it, it basically means wholeness, completeness, sometimes as a result, rest, perfection. And so horns, if you understand antiquity, horn was a symbol of a a king's power, like a rhinoceros horn or that kind of thing, or the horns on animals. So horns were the symbol of power. This lamb has seven horns. He is omnipotent, and he has seven eyes. He sees it all. 
and yet he's slain. Friends, what is going on here? When the elder says, the lion has conquered and John sees a lamb as slain, what is being communicated is that Christ as lion has overcome and conquered by being slaughtered as the lamb in fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. Through living in complete obedience to the will of God and satisfying all of perfection's demands in life, Christ was the one perfect human that all of humanity, including you and I, were created to be but failed. Through His death, Christ conquered death because He carried in Himself God's just judgment towards sin, and He satisfied God's demand for justice. Yet, because He was a perfect lamb, because He was an innocent lamb, He could die without deserving death and therefore offer pardon to all of us who should die but trust in Him dying in our place. And that's how He overcame. Not by exerting himself, not by showing himself to be the lion in, this, in, his, in his ministry, but to show himself as the lamb, submitting himself to the will of the Father. Now, is he a lion? You better believe it. But when he conquered the forces of darkness, he did not do it as a lion. He did it as a lamb. If you haven't read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, maybe you've seen the movies and maybe you thought that was enough or they, they, they turned you off to the books, I want to encourage you to read them. They're great kids' books. I read them all the way through the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time maybe two years ago. Man, I wept and rejoiced. There's this, there's this beautiful scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the Christ figure Aslan explains to Lucy and, and, and Susan why he died and yet come, could come back. He says this, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. It's a beautiful picture of exactly what's taking place. Look at verse 9. We don't have time to unpack it in its fullness, but it is so chock full of reality. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why were you worthy? Well, look at the conjunction right there. For, because you were slain, for you were slain. What else does that mean? Look at the next conjunction. And, and by your blood, that prepositional phrase, by your blood, speaks of manner. You ransom by your death. You ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, but it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 10. Not only did you do this, and you made them a kingdom of priests. You made them, excuse me, you made them a kingdom, which is a palace, of, a place of royalty, and you made them priests. Now, you might think, oh, that sounds boring. No offense, Pastor Rick, but I want to be a priest. Okay, you're missing the point. A priest was one that was be able to get close to the deity. Right? You're missing the point right? The priests were the ones that got to know the deity, and they were in fellowship with the deity. What he's saying is, you get to be in fellowship with God, and that's not all. Look, it continues, and they will reign on the earth. 
Jesus put humanity back on track to be God's vice regents over creation. That's why he's worthy. Now, friends, what is our response to this? What should our response to this be? What should our response to be? What should our response be to the one who yields such power as this throne represents, yet sacrificially gives his life so we can share in what that throne represents? And that's our last word. It's worship. What else could the response be? By the way, you see this all throughout both chapters 4 and 5. Chapter 4, verse 8, verse 11. Chapter 5, verse 9 and 10, verses 12 to 13. Worship is woven all through these two chapters. The four living creatures, the 24 elders. Chapter 5, verse 11 says, thousands upon thousands, millions upon millions. And finally, chapter 5, verse 13 says, every single creature in existence does it. And according to Philippians 2, whether they believe in God, or excuse me, everyone's going to believe in God, whether they accept his rule or not, every knee will bow, every tongue's going to confess. There will not be a single living entity that will not acknowledge the lordship of Christ. The question is, are we going to do it willingly? Or are we going to be doing it groveling in our anger and hatred? But all cosmos will worship him. Friends, I need to start wrapping this up, so let me just say... In Revelation 2 and 3, Christ has been calling the church to two things consistently in every letter, every week we looked at it, and that was to worship and to endure. That is how we conquer, because that's how Christ conquered. Not trusting to the very limited perspective of this world, but backing up and trusting to the massive perspective of Revelation 4 and 5. I've been reading a book by James Davidson Hunter. He's a professor of social theory and culture at University of uh, West Virginia. And it's called, To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World. I don't know if he's a Christian or not. You can't really tell from his writings. But it's interesting because he's making some observations on the history of Christianity and its, its, its rise and influence in the world. And he wrote this in 2010, but it's like he wrote it this year. And so I want to give you this as a way to think about it. It's not application per se, but how do you apply this, right? You fall on your face and you repent and you worship God. So that's your application. Let me talk about a way to think about how we move through our time. Hunter makes the point that in uncertain times, the church has always done one of three things. They've either attempted to dominate the culture around them through political power, and this is true whether you're on the right or the left. Christians have tried to dominate culture through political power. Sometimes Christians tried to assimilate the culture around them through attempts to be relevant to the culture or avoid persecution that were just like them. A third tactic has been that Christians have withdrawn from the culture around them to keep themselves safe or avoid compromise. So there's the, 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 the strategy of dominate the culture, assimilate the culture, we're just like you, we're, we can get along or withdraw from the culture. And if you think about it, those three strategies are still in play in the church today. It's very clear. But none of these are the way of the lion and the lamb. And friends, unless we self-consciously adopt his method to conquer, you will unconsciously adopt one of these other failed methods. As we study this book, and trust me, friends, 
I'm as uncomfortable what about, about what I'm saying as you might be in hearing me say it. Because I'm a, I'm a you know, the, what's the um, parasympathetic re- response? Either fight or flight. I have no flight instinct whatsoever. I fight everything, right? Ask my wife, ask my kids. When we play poker, I never fold. I always go all in and I always lose. Because I just fight. That's me. So I'm wrestling with what this means. But friends, as we study Revelation, it is a call to Christians not to dominate, not to assimilate, not to withdraw. But what Hunter says is faithful presence in the world. We conquer not through our politics or our compromise or our escape. We conquer the way the church has always conquered, Hunter writes, through our faithful presence as ambassadors who worship and endure. More than ever, the world needs this church, needs churches, needs Christians, needs you as a Christian, as an ambassador of another kingdom. As an ambassador, we connect with the world, unlike those who want to withdraw from it. But we also confront the world, unlike those who just want to assimilate it. And we convert the world, unlike those who simply want to dominate it. But we maintain our unique witness, like those who want to withdraw from the world. We will work for good of humanity and work for the justice like those who want to assimilate the world, and we will call for change and repentance, a goal sometimes shared with those who want to dominate. But we do it Jesus' way, through faithful presence, endurance, and worship. I'm running a little long. I just asked for just a couple more minutes. I want to conclude by a quote from Martin Luther King, Jr., He's, he's all over the place, imperfect for sure. I think if he lived out the, what he believed um, would have been better, but he got the vision. He loved it, even though he didn't practice it entirely in his life. I'm a fan, but I'm also a critical fan. But what he says in his book, Strength to Love, is a vision I think we can all agree with, because I think it's a vision that captures the lamb conquering. This is what he says. It's just mind-boggling, and I'll end with this. To our most bitter opponents, we say this, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force, I love this, with soul force. Yeah, all right. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we shall conquer. We shall win freedom. But not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart 
and conscience that we shall win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. I lied. I want to just close with this. When I read that verse, I thought of Revelation 12, 11. And they, the saints, have conquered him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And here it is. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Let's pray. Father, for what you call us to, we need perspective. Thank you that you have pulled the curtain back so that we might see your throne, that we might see the one that is worthy of all worship, honor, glory, power, majesty, and praise, so that our lives would be lives of worship. Father, you love this messed up, destroyed world and you send us into it. Forgive us for trying to dominate it. Forgive us for trying to just assimilate it. Forgive us for trying to escape it. Help us to be faithful in the midst of it, worshiping you, challenging it, testifying to the gospel. We can't do it on our own, so we do it with a body of believers empowered by your Holy Spirit, and we pray in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.